What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. The NCAA overreacted in granting an extra year of eligibility to spring sport student-athletes, says Barry Alvarez, Wisconsin Athletics Director. Andrew Dowdy, alongside my close personal friend Chase Kitty on this Easter holiday on the High Motor Podcast. And we're going to talk about best college football hires over the last 20 years here in a little bit. Also, I want to ask you some betting stuff, Chase. But first, here's what I want from you. I want you to tell me that I'm overreacting to Barry Alvarez's comments and Wisconsin's decision to not allow spring sports seniors to return next year. So he, Barry Alvarez, for those of you who didn't see it, he told these seniors, Wisconsin has 35 of them across 10 spring sports, and we don't even know how many of them actually would have come back. Let's just say half. So let's say 17 or 18 of them were actually planning on coming back after graduation to continue their athletic careers. He told them to move forward with their lives. Not not paraphrasing there. He said, I think the exact quote was, move on. And just last weekend, you and I spent a lot of the episode, I think it was last weekend, talking about non-revenue sports, which at Wisconsin, like several hundred other D1 schools, all of those spring sports are non-revenue. Rowing, golf, tennis, softball, those kind of things. And even though, as I did last week, I often question are those non-revenue sports worth it to a university? What are they getting in return for, for spending millions and losing millions of dollars on these sports? But I found this decision, in particular his comments, to be completely asinine. And I get that schools are in a tough spot. And Wisconsin not the only one that did it. Louisiana Tech just announced last week that they can't cover another year of senior scholarships for all of those spring sports. They had to pick a couple. I think it was baseball, and I can't remember the other one. And I get that you're in a tough spot. I mean, you're banking on money from the NCAA tournament. You're banking on college football money that might not be there this year, so things need to happen. Like Iowa State has done staff cuts. Minnesota has done staff cuts. Conferences have done things like that. But you need to figure it out. To Barry Alvarez, who makes almost $2 million per year, you're you're paid to figure that out. And if you can't figure that out, you cut your salary. You cut other salaries to, to pay for these kids who were told that they had four years of eligibility. And I know that some schools will sign a one-year scholarship contract. Some year, some schools are doing four years. I don't know what Wisconsin was doing for these student-athletes. But you're told by the university, essentially, that you have four years of eligibility. And that's what you have per NCAA rules now with this spring sport exclusion. But not now, now it's just these made-up rules that, that you're doing with a budget crisis. Anyways, Chase, am I overreacting to this? Or is this completely backwards and a bullshit move by Barry Alvarez? It's kind of douchey. I, I, I understand the spreadsheet aspect of it where if you look at it as from an administrative point of view and you go, Hey, like X doesn't equal Y. So we got to make some hard choices here. I understand that. I think his approach definitely could have been better. Uh, when you're going to do something that you already know is unpopular and a hard choice and you come out and say, uh, as you so eloquently put, Hey, uh, time to move on with your lives here, kids. That's, I mean, just did did they not have any like PR 
officials available for a Skype call that day. I mean, what do you think he should do? I'm of the belief that as of, I think it was 2017, the last numbers, Barry Alvarez was making $1.55 million per year. We can assume that that's gone up a little bit over the last couple of years. We'll put him at like 1.7, 1.8. Barry Alvarez, in my opinion, should cut his salary in half to make this happen. Is that too unreasonable of me to say? I think so, yeah. I, I never liked the whole, hey, guy that makes a lot of money who is making a financial decision, instead of making the decision you're making, why don't you just pay for it with your own money? Like, I, I, I've never liked but why, that. Why does Barry Alvarez have a job? Because in a free market society, he has a job that we value and the market values him at whatever amount of money that he makes. I mean, is is that too clinical of an answer? I, yeah, it's way too clinical. He has a job because he has unpaid student athletes making him money. And I know it's not these spring sports student athletes that are that are that are making him money. But I would, as I said to you before the show, I would rather have him just come out and say, oh, tough shit, softball, you lose us money. If we were talking about giving football student athletes an extra year of eligibility, I'd be all for it. Why not just come out and say, it's like, this is the stupid shit that the NCAA and all these schools try to pull. Everybody knows what what, what is there. We all know what college sports are doing, and yet they continue to, to tell us, well, you know, it's a tough decision, it's about the student athletes, blah, 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 blah. Why not just say, softball, you're losing us hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're not as high on the priority list. I would rather him just come out and say that instead. I think I probably would, too. I, I Like I said, I, I take issue with the way he said it, for sure. Uh, like, I, I we talked about on the podcast last week about how, like, I'm a big softball guy. So I, I don't like, uh, you know, sports that I like and the athletes that I really enjoy, like, being, you know, treated kind of shitty like this. But I understand having to make a tough decision like this. I just really think you should have done it in a different way. So you think I'm overreacting a little bit? A little bit, not a ton. I, I overall, I agree with your position. Would this be different if we're sitting here seven months from now and football is canceled and he has to go out and say something like that? Do you think it, I, my opinion is let's just see what happens to football and then we can come out and say whatever the hell we want, because at that point things are going to be pretty dire. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it is funny to imagine how this would be different if he was having to tell like a group of football players to move on. Right. Cause you've got to imagine it wouldn't be, Hey guys, tough shit, pack your bags. You know, <laughs> we'll talk about be... PR. What would that do for recruiting? Because exactly to be kind, let's be honest, softball recruiting doesn't matter nearly as much as football recruiting. I think that's extremely obvious. So if he comes out and says that, What's going to happen to football recruiting, to men's basketball recruiting? That's going to change everything. This is kind of a, I'm going down an alley here, but why hasn't SEC softball run and it just means more campaign yet? Because we like to talk about SEC football dominance. Have you seen how many SEC teams get in the softball tournament every year? It's like the entire conference. I have not. I think that I think that you're asking that question to the wrong person. With all due respect, I have I have no damn clue how many softball teams get an NCAA. I'm I'm year. telling you that a couple of years ago, literally every single SEC team got into the tournament. Literally every single one. That's not surprising at all. All right, let's talk some college football hires here. Uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we I, I had published the 25 best college basketball hires on HeroSports.com, and then last week I did the 25 best college football hires, and we briefly talked about the basketball hires, and you thought that I did a pretty good job on that. You didn't have a whole lot of beef. We spent a lot of time talking about like Bo Ryan versus Roy Williams. How do you how do you manage the expectations of that? Could you know Bo Ryan have done what Roy Williams did at UNC? Yada yada yada. Anyways, for college football, it seems like you have a bigger beef. And last week in the year wrong segment, we kind of 
tease this by by me saying that David Cutcliffe at Duke was a better hire than Nick Saban at Alabama. And in my rankings, the gap isn't that big. And you did a pretty good job of convincing me that I might have been wrong on that. I still hold the belief that David Cutcliffe was a better hire. Again, we're talking about the better hire here, not the better coach. Nick Saban, LSU, David Cutcliffe, Duke. I have David Cutcliffe at Duke at number five, Nick Saban at number six. Before we hopped on here, you said you were going to tear these rankings apart. And even though last week you... You made an argument for Nick Saban over David Cutcliffe. I didn't get the feeling like you were angered. This morning when we hopped on here, it seemed like you were were a little triggered at my rankings here. What is your biggest problem with them? Okay, definitely, definitely not angry. I'm, if I, if I, why are you so pissed off this morning? (laughs) It's a better podcast if I'm really angry with you, right? Is that exactly, exactly. Like I said last week, we agree too much. I'd rather have you scream at me sometimes. Here's the, here's the thing. If I'm starting at the top, and there's lots of little comments I would like to make, but if I'm starting at the top, dude, where is Chip Kelly? I, I have <laughs> this one is is painful for me because I so I have my I had a list I have my spreadsheet pulled up 51 names that I that I had started with here. Okay, and then I I didn't rank all 51 of them. I basically put the top 25. I think I ranked I ranked. Th- 20 rank 26 <laughs> chip kelly was 26 okay i i think he's got to be on here and the reason i kept him off was he wasn't there for very long i get what he did there i'm not gonna die i mean what did he have like four losses in in five years or something like that something crazy he walked into a much better situation at oregon and had the financial support to do what he did at oregon that is why he I kept him off the list. And honestly, if you want to put him at, who did I have at 25? Gene Chizik. The only reason I had Gene Chizik on there, like I said in the intro, was I feel like if you want a national championship, you're on this list. Even though we can talk about Cam Newton and, and how much more he meant to that team probably than Gene Chizik did. But if you want to take um, Ken Niamatololo off the list, number 24, and put Chip Kelly in there, I have no problem with that. Like I said, Chip Kelly was 26 for me. I liked the situation that he walked into, too. All right, so... I want to come back to Gene Chizik in a second because I have some comments on him as well. I think you have to put Chip Kelly on this list because for for anybody that didn't listen to our big conversation about sort of expectations and, and everything last week, uh, that, that's a big dynamic on creating a list like this. It's not just what you accomplished. It's also like where you were pulled from. So like, when we talk about Nick Saban going to Alabama, that's a guy who's already won a national championship. So, like, you're already hiring somebody of a pretty significant pedigree. Chip Kelly, before he was at Oregon, was the offensive coordinator at New Hampshire. Yeah, but he didn't go directly from New Hampshire to Oregon. They saw what he did under Bellotti at Oregon. Right, but he's, he was only there for, like, a year and change, right, before he became the head coach. He wasn't the OC for very long. It was 2007-2008. And then he and then he's the coach. He went in two years from OC at New Hampshire to head coach of the University of Oregon in two years. And can I take a, can I take a sidebar here? Yeah, that is not appreciated as much as it should be. And that's I noted this in Lincoln Riley's deal. He went from a G five coordinator to head coach at one of the what five best jobs in college football, seven or eight at the very most. In 30 months. I don't think that's talked about enough. But anyways, go back to Chip Kelly. No, just I I think that. And then when you look at what he did at Oregon, how he set the table for them, and I think what he did to college football, 
because we're very much operating right now. If 2000 to 2010 was sort of the rich rod spread run offense, like, like that's sort of where things were going the first decade of this, then this last decade has been definitely influenced by Chip Kelly and by a lot of like the the Mike, uh, you know, the, the 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 Big Twelve air raid stuff, you know. Uh, so I, I think Chip Kelly has to be on the list, not just for what he did to Oregon, but how he sort of transcended his individual position. Fine. If you want to widen the lens, sure. Absolutely. You make a good argument that. If you want to widen the lens to college football, by the way, I looked it up. Chip Kelly had six losses in four years, only four losses in the final three years. If you want to widen the lens to all of college football, and that's why I was very skeptical of Chip Kelly going to UCLA because what he did spread so quickly in college football that when he came back to college football two years ago, no, two years ago, I wasn't as sold because of what everybody had done in the Chip Kelly mold while he was gone. And I didn't think it was innovated any innovated any, any longer. Anyways, if you want to widen the lens, sure. Let's put Chip Kelly on the list. I totally agree with that. All right. What what other problems do you have? Uh since since it's already been name dropped here and we're gonna go presidential debate rules style here. Since it's been mentioned, let's now address it. Uh Gene Chizik. Even if you I think it's very easy to make the argument that you referenced that, like, hey, Auburn's national championship wasn't about Gene Chizik. It was about Cam Newton. But like, he still you, deserves some—I mean, he did something to do it, right? Sure. He he got him there, right, after right. all. So, I mean, he I'm not saying he deserves no credit, but I don't—if if we're purely—we're not talking about who deserves credit or who won national championships. We're talking about who was the best hire, and I think you can make a reasonable case that Gene Chizik was not one of the best 25 hires— even though Auburn wins a national championship while So you he's could have brought coach. some other schmuck in there and he would have won the national championship with Cam Newton. Agree. I think that's fair. My my only point was that if you won a national championship, you did something right and you should be one of the 25 best hires. That's why he is number 25 on the list because no, he's not one of the 25 best hires of this millennium. I don't even know where he I don't even think he'd be in the top 50. Would he be in the top 75 or top 100? I have no idea. It's more of I was going through this and saying, God, you won a national championship. All right, let's put you on the list. That can be your automatic bid. Uh, and, and then there's just a lot where I like, I don't know. I, I might move. Like, I think maybe Jim Harbaugh is a little too low. Or... Well, hold on. Let's go back. So you said Chip Kelly. Is there anyone that, that wasn't on the list? Let me tell you some of the guys that, that were on my honorable mention that I'm curious if you thought should have been on there. Like I had Bill Snyder when he returned to Kansas State after Ron Prince came in and basically imploded that program. Um, like P.J. Flack at Western Michigan, how he turned them around, but they've kind of sunk a little bit. Scott Frost is on that list. Chris Peterson's on that list twice, but he didn't make the top 25. Charlie Strong's on there. Um, some of the recent guys, and I'm really curious your take on this. I didn't have anybody that was hired in the last three cycles, but I did have several people on my honorable mention list that was hired uh, 2018, 19, and 20. Dan Mullen, Florida, Scott Satterfield, Louisville, Mike Norvell, Florida State. Do you feel like it's just too early to yeah. put any of those people on that list, even though, I mean, you and I both love the Chris Kleiman hire at Kansas State, and we both still love it. I think Scott Satterfield at Louisville was a phenomenal hire. I think Mike Norvell at Florida State was a phenomenal hire. The only problem was it's it's too who who would you I mean who would you take off of this lift if, if you're putting somebody on there? We can't just we can talk about like Mark D'Antonio off the field, but we still can't discount everything Mark D'Antonio did on the field. Chris Creighton, uh, Kyle Whittingham's kind of in those twenties. That's where I had a hard time with saying even though I love these hires right now, 
I don't think you can take somebody off the list. Um, like I had Matt Campbell on there, Mike Leach, Washington State. Um, who else did I have on there? I think that was those are the headliners. Any of those: Mark Mangino, Gary Pinko, Greg Schiano, Frank Solich at Ohio, at Ohio, Troy Calhoun. Any of those egregious omissions on my part? Uh, I don't think any of them are egregious. I agree with you on the on the recent head coaches. It's it's potential energy versus kinetic energy. Like we can we can love a hire, but we got to see what they do before they can go on a list like this. Uh, I think the best case you could probably make is PJ Fleck at Western Michigan. Uh, I mean the the heights I think he took them to uh, with the amount of profile he had before the hire, and given that it's Western Michigan, I mean they hosted game day. Like that's. That's not nothing. Uh, but going back to your argument of of when we were, I think a few weeks ago, when we were saying who lost the most with the NCAA tournament, your argument, Dayton, because a Final Four can completely transform a program, look at Butler, look at VCU. Western Michigan football has kind of just gotten back to, meh, like, you know, they're they're just a MAC team now. It's not like VCU, which still, when you say VCU, people think 2011 VCU. When you say Butler, you think of what Butler did because those teams have consistently been in the conversation. And, yes, the sample size is smaller for Fleck. I mean, he's only been gone for three years. I get that. But Western Michigan so quickly went back to a, a afterthought program that it, I don't know what, Fleck did for them beyond his tenure, and I think you have to include some of that. Did he set them up for, you know, a few years down there? If we say now that Western Michigan is still this ten-win team under Lester, sure, I might have considered PJ Fleck a little bit more. But Western Michigan has so quickly reverted back to this afterthought program. Yeah, isn't that kind of just football, though? I, I mean, it's it's Should it's harder fault to PJ Fleck for that. I don't know. I don't think I do. I think it's it's harder to maintain momentum after like a a great coach moves on in football versus basketball. You know, basketball, you get a little bit of momentum. You really only got to bring in two or three great, great recruits, great meaning relative to what the program was before. With football, it's like you, you need so many things to go right. You, you have to have another good coaching staff. You have to have 10, 12 good recruits coming in. I mean, it, I think it's just harder to maintain that momentum. So I don't necessarily ding Fleck for that. Uh, anyways, I interrupted you when you were talking about moving some guys around. Anybody that, that was wildly out of place in the top 25? Uh, no, definitely not wildly. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I move a guy, I probably move a guy like Brian Kelly up. Uh, he had had some set success. I, I, people like to, to knock Notre Dame, and I understand why. But the guy's played for two national championships. Uh, well, not two, but he played in the BCS and he he made a playoff again. So I mean, even though he they didn't actually play, like they were there, but they weren't they weren't actually there. So you don't you don't care. You're saying he got him to that point. Yeah, he deserves credit for that. I, I think he does. I think I think Jim Harbaugh at Stanford in 2007 was a really good hire when you consider what he had done uh, before he went to Stanford. I know now. We we like to ding on him for what, what's happened in Michigan or, or the lack of what's happened in Michigan, and I think all of that is relatively fair. But if you go back 15 years and he's just like this guy at the University of San Diego, he's a Division two head coach. Yeah, like that. Like that was an incredible program. hire. This isn't. I mean, this isn't an FCS coach going to going to a G five. Like this isn't Everett Withers going to Texas State. This is a Division two guy. And even though Stanford wasn't what Stanford is now. Division two going to Pac-12. So, yeah, maybe Harbaugh could be a little bit higher. Are you good with me? So I have Harbaugh 15 and then David Shaw at eight. Do you think, A, that David Shaw should be ahead of him and should he be ahead of him by that much? 
I'm not I'm not sold that he should be. And, and I ahead of that, him at all. You don't think he should be ahead of him I at all. I think you can make the case that Harbaugh should be ahead of Shaw. And, and I think Shaw deserves a lot of credit too. So this isn't me trying to take anything away from him because he was a relative unknown too. And he was just sort of groomed to be the guy for when Harbaugh left. Uh, but I think you could make the case... Well, I mean, Stanford... I don't know. It, it, you could make really compelling cases both ways. That's the case of what you were, were saying last week. It was... It was a harder hire to get Harbaugh, but what Shaw has done now for almost a decade, nine years yeah. now, that's what puts him... Yeah, I, I think it was easy hire. I don't know if any hire is really easy. It looks easy now, nine years later, but if he would have flopped, it would not have been an easy hire. I, I think it was probably a hell of a lot of an easy, easier hire for, for Stanford in 2011 promoting Shaw than saying we're going to go pluck this Division II head coach, even with the name recognition, even though we all knew who, knew who Jim Harbaugh was, plucking a Division II head coach. Yeah, it, that was the harder hire. The longevity is what puts David Shaw over the top for me because when he came in, this is still Stanford. How Stanford does things, it's remarkable that they're averaging more than eight wins over the last decade before last year's dud. Yeah, people forget how hard it is to win at schools like Stanford and Notre Dame and UVA and like these these really elite like public Ivy type schools it's like it's not the same as like not to use a tired argument but like it's not the same as going to Mississippi State or whatever like I don't want to pick a school but I just picked a random SEC school like it's not the same as winning there they're they're just the standards the academic standards are way harder at some of these schools and to to win 8 or 9 games consistently is just really remarkable one thing I do want to ask you here, I had a hard time. Uh, let's take Les Miles, for example. Les Miles, late in his tenure, he started getting crapped on a lot. And we forget that Les Miles, early in his tenure, he was a pretty good head coach. He wasn't nearly as stubborn back then, and he was a, a pretty darn good head coach. I have him at 14. Um, do, you, do you have a hard time, like I did, weighing something like that, where, where the perception of Les Miles for the last several years was this stubborn dude who who wouldn't make changes and get LSU over the top with the resources and talent they have versus what Les Miles did a lot of good things in his first seven or eight years. Yeah, people forget, I think, how how great he was consistently year to year for a really long time. And then Saban shows up and, and kind of dwarfs him a little bit and, and things start to go south. But I don't know. I, I, I think he... he did, deserves to be in the top 15 of this i i think you could make the argument maybe he deserves to go a little higher but at a certain point you look around and go hey there's there's 10 people ahead of you dude like as good as a higher it is so yeah i i think he's in the right neighborhood there um yeah what do you think of bill clark i have bill clark at number four and like i had mentioned uh, doing my basketball hires if you wanted i think i had scott drew like three or four because of what he did uh, when he came into that broken program. If you wanted to put Scott Drew in the number one above Tony Bennett, I don't even know if I would argue against that. And this sounds insane, but if you want to put Bill Clark ahead of Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban for what he did at UAB, I don't think I would even argue that, even though we all agree that Nick Saban's the greatest of all time and what Dabo has done transforming a middling program at Clemson into a powerhouse. But what Bill Clark has done at UAB, I think there's an argument there that that is far more impressive than what any coach in college football has done over the last 20 years. Uh, totally agree, but it goes back to the Cutcliffe thing, right? Like, it, it's really, it's an incredible story. I hope somebody writes a book about it someday, about what Bill Clark has done at UAB. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, 
when does the fact that Nick Saban has won a bunch of national championships at Alabama supersede the complex and unique nature of what Bill Clark has done, you know, in Birmingham down the road? Uh, for me, I, I think you still have to keep, you know, a certain amount of distance from the top of the list with him, even though it's a great story, what he's done and a really impressive degree of difficulty. Absolutely. And I don't, I don't think I would argue against it either way. I put Bill Clark four because I think Bill Clark should be four. But if you want to make the argument that Bill Clark in staying in Birmingham and rebuilding this program and not just rebuilding them to come out and, and play and get, get their ass kicked in conference USA and win one game, they came back and they've been consistently one of the best, I don't know, 10 or 12 group of five teams over the last couple of years. That, to me, is mind-blowing. Anything else on this list before we move on? Yeah, I have, I have two more big ones, the first of which I'm going to lead with because you just mentioned them. I think you have the correct two people at the top of this list, but I think you have them in the wrong order. Wow. Yeah. That... So, uh, if you're not looking at the list— hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you think Nick Saban's the greatest coach of all time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Continue. I do. Uh, West Virginia boy, Nick Saban. Seal should have been, should have been Rich Rod at, at Alabama. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, it, it has been. It, it's it's gotten a lot of thought in in my brain. Yeah. Talk about writing a book. I've I've always thought it'd be fascinating doors, to write yeah. a book on on all the hires that that didn't happen. Like John Wooden wasn't supposed to go to UCLA. He was going to Minnesota, and there was a snowstorm. What happens if Rich Rock goes to Alabama and Nick Saban doesn't go there, and he he goes somewhere else? What happens if Tom Herman? goes to LSU, and Ed Orgeron doesn't go there. I think yeah. that would be and fascinating. For, for just not to go too far down the alley, but for those that don't remember, the year before Rich Rodriguez left West Virginia to go to Michigan, it was heavily rumored he was going to leave West Virginia to go to Alabama. He ends up not. They hire Nick Saban, and then the, the next year, 2007, when everything goes completely crazy, and we have the, the wild year where everybody keeps losing, uh, that's the year where West Virginia could have played for the national title, loses to Pitt, the end of the season, and they end up going to the Fiesta Bowl, and then Nick Saban the year after that wins the national championship. The rest is history. But it, it is well, not even pricey. heavily rumored. I, I can't. I mean, it was an NFL report. I think it was Ian Rappaport. I can't remember who. I, I think it was, it was too. It was happening. Like he, it, they were doing it. And I think it was to the point. I think it was like a Ken Niamatololo situation where like he was going. Like they were getting on the plane. And they just decided not to. Like Ian Rappaport had the correct report, and, it, and it's been documented since then. So yeah, yeah, it you're, you're right. It's it's not enough to say it was heavily rumored. It was right. Yeah, it was like it was literally it was literally happening. Anyways, why do you have Dabble one? Um, so Nick Saban, when he comes to Alabama, has already won a national championship in college football. Uh, so obviously he is incredible in so many ways that are underappreciated. Uh, but he already was a firmly established commodity and I get that he went to the NFL and it didn't go great in the AFC East and you know there's lots of lots of other coaches that can say they had a bad time in the the AFC East the last 20 years but I, I do think that he was still a really established national championship winning coach so for him to go to Alabama which is historically already a great program even if it wasn't at the time he took over uh, it, it's I don't think it's like wildly surprising to me that he turns it into what he does. I, and I don't think that's knocking the impressiveness or the degree of difficulty of what he's done. I think when you look at the other way, when you look at what Dabo's done at Clemson, a relatively unknown guy, like he was a tight ends coach, you know, he was a GA at Alabama, people way 
oversell the whole Dabo Alabama thing. He was a small-time positional coach for a couple years, and then he went to Clemson where he was a small-time positional coach, and he had like one – you're better on the coaching stuff than me, but he had like one year where he was a coordinator or assistant head coach. Mm-hmm. And then he takes over and turns it into the behemoth that it is now – Wins two national championships at Clemson. Like, remember when Clemson was a punchline? Remember when Clemsoning was a thing? And yeah. now he's the highest paid coach or whatever. I mean, it's just like well, it's he, a total. He turn wasn't. On. I'm not gonna say he was almost fired, but there were. I mean, there, it's well documented with this too. Like, trustees wanted him gone yeah. after the six win 2010, and the athletic director uh, to, uh, Terry Don Phillips and the president Jim Barker. They they basically said no. Like, he's our guy. So I. Yeah, I think that they deserve credit for the hire, and they, in my opinion, they almost like rehired him by saying, "No, we're we're not going to listen to the trustees. This isn't just some random guy screaming. This is the trustees who wanted him fired. So you basically hired the guy twice." For me, it goes back to what you were just saying. All of what Nick Saban has done supersedes anything else, in my opinion. That's what puts him over the edge. I think Dabble Sweeney was the harder hire. Nick Saban's resume is what makes him the, the greatest of all time and the best hire. Uh, since 2000 for me the other one I would do and this is something we we sort of dove into very very slightly uh, before backing out of it about three months ago which is I think Ed Orgeron is way too high on this list and I think you even sort of recognize that by your description the, the what you write under Ed Orgeron I is, literally said I don't know is Ed Orgeron a top 10 hire I don't know I do know that Ed Orgeron created the best team in college football history so who cares which is a both insightful and funny from you so good job uh, I, I I would not put him this high on this list uh, I I think boy I'm really gonna maybe make some people mad with this. If 10 years from now we look back at the Ed Orgeron thing, do you think he's closer to Les Miles or Gene Chizik? I think you first have to ask yourself, and this is something we talked about right after the national championship game, Yeah, how sad it is that Ed Orgeron will get fired by LSU probably in the next five to six years. I think that is extremely sad for, for how much he loves that program, but it's going to happen. I think that they he kind of outkicked his coverage last year. That being said, oh my God, that's a hard question. Joe um, Brady, how how I, I much? He's not Gene Chizik. How he's much? Not Gene Chizik. But how much of it, it's something? It's a question I asked in the podcast you and I did right after the national championship game, and you and I both agreed. You know what? We don't even want to have this conversation right now because it's not fair to Orgeron. The guy just won the national championship. Let him take a victory lap. Mm-hmm. But it's three months later now, and at some point. It's going to be okay to ask the question, how much is Orgeron responsible for that title and how much was it he had an incredible senior class, he had an incredible quarterback guru that immediately left and went to the NFL, he had a great quarterback who had one of the greatest like year-to-year changeovers in the history of college football. I mean, just how many things can go your way? Have you looked at the returning production numbers yet for 2020 college football? LSU's in the bottom five, which I guess is a transition to the next topic uh, when we want to talk about gambling. But, like, I just don't know how much of last year 
Orgeron himself is responsible for beyond the idea that as a head coach, it's your job to put everything together. And he did an amazing job with that. I just don't know how much of the actual product was him. Let me ask you this. Is it fair to say, let's see what happens to Joe Brady? Do you think that that lies on Ed Orgeron? If Joe Brady flops in the NFL, does Orgeron look better? If Joe Brady does really well, does he look worse? Or is the argument that obviously Orgeron said, I mean, talk about hard hire. They plucked this guy from, he was a freaking analyst with yeah. the Saints. Like, this wasn't an OC. Yeah, Joe Brady should Saints. be on this list. <laughs> this wasn't even a, a top assistant. Joe Brady, nobody knew who Joe Brady was. Don't lie to yourself. Nobody no. knew who he was. I mean, you might have known who he was if you were down there, but nobody else across the country. I didn't. So no way. What, what, what are you subscribing to there? How much do you care about Joe Brady? And is, he, is that even fair to Ed, Ed Orgeron? Oh, it's absolutely not fair to Ed Orgeron. But All it will of the impact things that I'm his, saying are not really fair. But it will impact his legacy, though. If Joe yeah. Brady goes in the NFL and flops, I think that's good for Orgeron's legacy because they can say, well, damn, obviously Orgeron did something right with LSU. Yeah, I totally agree. Even even if even if that's not actually factual, you know? You could, you could flop for a million different reasons, but it's definitely in Ed Orgeron's best interest if he goes to the Panthers and the Panthers continue to suck because they don't have a roster. Uh, what was the other one that you had a problem with? Uh, that was the other big one. That was kind of okay. it. Great. Want to talk about betting? I do. I always want to talk about betting. The biggest thing here is is that you're not betting right now, correct? On nothing. You're not You're not doing the, the Taiwanese high school basketball thing. I right? have bet a little bit the last couple weeks on Belarusian soccer. But you could have bet more if you wanted to. Those opportunities are still available for you. They're out and there. Is, yeah. Who who's breaking that down? Are there people actually breaking that down where you feel comfortable making the bet? And how? What are you even looking at right now? Uh, well, As a guy that that sticks to how many sports do you generally stick to? Five. Uh, tennis, softball, basketball, football. Yeah, so you have a relatively four. tight circle. So yeah. what, what what did you say you bet on Belarus? Belarus and soccer. Yeah. Clearly, that's not in your wheelhouse, right? It is not. But I haven't missed a ma- pick yet, so I feel pretty okay, good. Okay, so okay, so tell our listeners how do you make so the, the degenerates that are sitting at home <laughs> just betting on whatever. How do you go about making a smart pick like that, or are you just doing that to keep yourself sane? I would argue there's no such thing as a smart pick in Belarusian soccer. Uh, but I don't know. I've, I've studied the tables. I've studied the historical matchups. Uh, it's it's kind of the beginning of their season. I definitely would tell you I think there's been an element of luck to what I've been doing. But, you know, it's I've been doing a little bounce-back stuff. You know, a, a team starts off 0-2-0, but they have a better roster than that. They have better historical finishes than that. So you, you can expect maybe a draw in the next match. You go for like a like a plus, plus .5 type of thing so that if they win or they draw, either way, you're going to get the you're going to get the win. Uh, that just that kind of stuff, and and when I say a little bit, I mean like three or four matches. I have not been pounding the table over there in Eastern Europe. Don't but if somebody wrong. wants to, <laughs> if somebody wants to pound the table at. I mean, I get these these promotional emails about. I don't even know what they're for. I'm not. I'm not doing any of these simulation or like these video game tournaments that people are having. I mean, so you're not betting on like the, these NBA 2K matches or, or different types of simulations online. You're not doing. You're not betting on video games. You're not betting on weather. You're actually still betting on sports themselves. Yeah, I, I don't. I like to play League of Legends. I don't like to bet on League of Legends. Uh, so I, I don't. I mean, there's probably money to be made in the esports market if you really pay attention and, and know what you're doing. I just don't pay attention. 
So that's not a market I, I, I would feel like I have any kind of leverage in. Uh, I, I do feel like I, I've sort of latched onto something a little bit early in, in the soccer thing, but I'm getting out early. Like I'm taking my money and I'm leaving the casino. Um, and then uh, I know there's another thing you you asked about, but I forgot. I, I'm just, I don't know. It, there's nothing really going on. So I'm I'm starting to look at the the team totals for football and, and identifying some some prospects there. Yeah, let's talk about those team totals. I, I had Connor O'Gara Saturday down south on earlier this week, and we were looking at Big Ten, SEC in, in, in particular, um, you know, talking about Alabama. Are they going to get over 10.5? Last year they won 10 regular season. They failed to win 10, excuse me, failed to win 11 regular season games for the first time since 2010. Um, I mean, he was saying that, you know, Iowa was at 7. Always take the over with Kirk Ferentz. Trust him to do that. I think they've hit the over on 7. Not that their, their total before the season was 7, but they've had more than 7 regular season wins. I think five straight season. Anything sticking out to you who who you've said several times on the show that you don't usually pound the win totals that hard, but when you do take one, you know that you're going to hit it. You feel very confident in it. We're still sitting here, what, four and a half months. We don't even know if football is being played. What do you like so far? Uh, yeah, uh, just to follow up on what you said there, I, I don't bet. A, there are some people that sprinkle money all over the win totals. I do not do that. Uh, but I will pick a couple that I feel very strongly about, and I, I mean, my my hit rate on them is astronomical. So I'm looking at uh, to connect back to a conversation we were just having. I Can really I like for one second. You you say you don't take that many, but when you do, you you bet a lot of money on that. I do. Right? Yeah. Give us an example so our listeners know that you're not just blowing smoke here. Um, a couple years ago, this was when West Virginia, it was right before uh, Dana left. Uh, obviously, I know the West Virginia program really well. Will Greer was a senior. I liked his weapons. I thought the defense was a, was underrated. It wasn't great, but it was, especially by Big 12 standards, I thought it was pretty good, and I knew Will Greer was just going to throw all over the place. The total was like six, six, six and a half. Uh, so yeah, I slammed it. I put like twelve grand on it, and yeah, it was easy. Easy. So easy even win. though you're not taking that many, you're making it worth your time. Whereas if you might be betting on several games, you throw it on fifty here, a hundred there, with something like that, you're gonna you're gonna put some pretty heavy juice on it. Yes. Anyways, I interrupted you. What 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 numbers are you liking so far this year? Uh, I think I think the LSU number is they are begging you to take the over. They they have hung LSU at nine knowing that they're the reigning national champions and that a lot of people are going to come back on the over. Uh, and there's just no evidence to support that LSU is going to be good next year. They have a bottom five level of returning production. They have a departed quarterback. They have a departed quarterback whisper. They are going to be breaking in new people at basically every position on the field. And you think they're going to go... 10 and 2 in the SEC? I mean, that's just not realistic. So I, I think the under on LSU is a strong play that I, I'm I'm starting to think very, very closely about putting a decent amount of money on. One that I know you and I talked about over text was Texas AM at nine and a half. And I am a card carrying member of the Why is Texas AM always talked about like their good club? Well, historical context on that, I think I had tweeted that they haven't won 10 regular season games in 22 years. Right, and if you want to take the over on Texas A&M at 9.5, you are betting that they're going to hit 10 wins next year. Uh, I, I'm i not as high on the under on Texas A&M. I do think historically it, it's, it's, the plick, it's the pick to make, 
One of the things I love to do when I start looking at taking a season win total is I, I like to just make an entire sort of collage of where does this program live wins wise? You know, how many wins have they had every season for the last 20 years or 10 years or whatever? And it's a, it's, you know, Look at West Virginia, like I was just talking about a couple years ago. West Virginia, since they've moved to the Big 12, they've had a couple of down years, but for the most part, they live in that 8-4 and four range. They're sort of a second-tier Big 12 team. So when I see numbers at 6.5 or 7, I go, okay, that's a good number for me to hit the over on. And with Texas A&M, if you look at his, it historically, 9.5 under is a great play for that. The thing is, if you look at their schedule... They could go 10 and 2 this year. It is not far fetched at all. And I think a lot of people are going to look at their schedule and they're going to say, okay, Alabama, that's a loss. But there's no other game that is absolutely an L for them. They've got a couple of road games. I'm doing this from memory, so I apologize if I get something wrong. But they go, I think, to Starkville and then to South Carolina back to back. They host LSU. They don't. You know, they don't play anybody terribly challenging out of conference. I know they have Colorado at home, and I, that's that's probably the toughest one. Like, they could go 10-2. and two. I don't even think 11-1 and one is off the table. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to win some road games. If you're betting on the under, you're, you're basically betting that they are not good on the road and that they get tripped up in a lot of those road contests. But returning production, they're in the top 20 in, in FBS college football. Jimbo Fisher is their coach, so you know that they're going to get a lot out of the the players that they do have. Uh, I, I think that is sort of they they are inviting you. The books are inviting you to take the under there, and the over actually might have some real legs. So for me, A and M is a stay away. Yeah, the crossover games, uh, like you mentioned, South Carolina, and they get Vanderbilt at home, uh, LSU is at home, they go to Alabama, those non-conference, Fresno State at home, Colorado at home, Abilene Christian at home, North Texas at home. Yeah, so that's probably 4-0 so those... in the out-of-conference. I mean. So yeah, you have four non-conference games uh, at home, I and mean, I know we don't want to chalk up Colorado or Fresno State, they could give them some sort of game, uh, but yeah, it's very possible or probable that they will go 4-0. and Going back to the perception, because you talk a lot about the perception of Texas A&M, I think this one is really interesting because... It seems like, from what you have said, that the the perception forces these lines up or down, like Tennessee, Nebraska, uh, Texas A and M. They're all kind of Miami. They're all kind of in in this bubble of teams that we all talk about every single season. This is something that Connor talked about again on the, on the uh, midweek episode a few days ago. These teams will be consistently ranked in the top twenty five, only to fall out of the top twenty five ninety percent of the time by the end of the season. But with Texas A and M, what I found really interesting is that. They're playing that. They're playing that to you. They're saying, "Take the under on this because we know something that maybe you don't know." Is that unique for Texas A&M? Because they're almost saying, "We get that Texas A&M is routinely overrated, so we're going to kind of force you to the under." Does that does that make something fishy to you? It's it's absolutely not unique to Texas A&M. It, it goes back to something I talk about all the time with you and with other people on other podcasts and on my podcast. Gambling, it, like when you when you see a season win total number. That the fact that that's an estimation for how many games they could win is only part of the equation. It's all about the marketplace. They are setting things relative to the reality with the team, but also relative to perception and relative to where action's going to come in. So I think it's possible 
that whoever has set these lines at nine and a half, and there's a few out right now, including DraftKings, who has, I think, like every Power 5 team right now. I don't bet with DraftKings, but it's there. Um, it, you could you could make the case that books and bookmakers have caught on to the idea that Texas A&M has become a little bit of a pole punchline and that they have set this line sort of knowing that people are going to want to bet the under. They, they, they may think that people are think they're being smart when they look at Texas A&M and think, okay, I know that's one of these overvalued teams. So I know, I think Mm -hmm. I'm getting value by betting the under when really most of the time bookmakers are always ahead of the curve and they always know something that you don't. Some of the, some of you expect most of the money to come in on the under for this. Um, I do believe that I saw that the under was juiced. So yeah, I'm guessing that most of the money is going to come in on the under because it looks like the books are estimating that most of the money is going to come on the under. Do I think it's going to move? Because I feel like no. nine is is kind of a, a shitty spot for that. So no, you don't I don't think, think it'll it's drop. Move. Interesting. Because if it, well, here's what I'd say: if it moves down to nine, then Texas A&M is a very interesting overbet, and I think it mm. would get hit pretty hard by professionals. Because mm. at nine, now you're getting the push at nine and three, and I definitely right. think with that schedule and the talent they have, nine and three is definitely on the table. Well, yeah, I mean, you're talking about racking up wins. Where where are the of the four losses here? Sure, we could we could find them. They could go to Auburn and lose. Absolutely, they could lose to LSU, lose to to Alabama. But then after that, that's even assuming that they lose against the three best teams on their schedule. Highly possible they go one and two or two and one. The loss after that, I mean, what are we talking about going to Starkville and losing? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're not losing at Arkansas. They're not losing to Abilene Christian, North Texas. Maybe they lose to Ole Miss at home. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, talk about half of half of a win. How dramatically that changes yeah. things. Anything else stick uh, stick out to you before we go here? Not on these SEC ones. I, I think I think they're pretty tight. And I think somebody uh, that's maybe done a little bit more research, uh, sort of down ballot with South Carolina at five and a half, or Ole Miss at five and a half, Mississippi State six and a half. I think maybe in those zones, you could uh, you you could maybe find some value. I think the Kentucky over could definitely be interesting. I just haven't done that much research into that part of the conference yet. All right. As of now, I have a couple guests lined up for the for the midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast coming Wednesday morning, so we'd love to have you all back for that. Available on every podcast app, and of course, I'll tweet that out at a Dowdy88 when it's available. Chase is at Chase A. Kitty. Thanks for coming to this episode of the High Motor Podcast. I saw a friend today. It had been a while, and we forgot each other's name. But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between